Welcome to Life in the Land, a grazing her podcast telling the stories of women living across rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, your host for today. At 46, Tanya Lee Holmes finally knows who she is. In fact, she says her 40s were when her life really got started. Quite something when you consider she acquired a life-changing disability at 39. Living on a small property outside Bathurst in the central tablelands of New South Wales, the mother of three has spent the last 20-something years navigating life as a carer, looking after her children, two of whom have cerebral palsy. Yet that family dynamic shifted hugely in 2016, when Tanya's life as she knew it changed forever. But more on that in a while, because long before that day, some 23 years in fact, a teenage Tanya met the love of her life whilst doing Friday night laps of her country town's main street. We were actually engaged three months later um, and I was still at school. I was 16 when I met him and uh, just a few weeks off turning 17. Got engaged when I was 17. Wow. <laughs> what did your friends think? They thought it was a little bit crazy, but, um, you know, I've got friends from back then still now and, and they, they always say that we were just, um, we're just meant to be. I love that. So beautiful. So you talk about Evan having saved you. What do you mean by that? Um, I came from a very disruptive, abusive family, um, life and, um, yeah, it was, you know, I had a sister with an intellectual disability that I kind of mothered and uh, and I was kind of the mother in my household being the oldest and, and looked after my siblings and um, it wasn't a very ideal um, childhood, that's for sure. And, yeah, and then when he sort of grouped in, I guess he saved me from becoming like them, you know, when you when you come from that sort of childhood it's very easy to just fall into what you're used to and yeah when I met Evan I guess I could see where my future was going to go Um, whereas before even though I had dreams and aspirations I couldn't actually see any further past what I would dream about I guess. It, It is really amazing that you didn't continue that generational cycle. Yeah look I was I guess I was very lucky in a sense that like I had really good godparents so you know a lot of um holidays I would spend with them and um and although my grandmother for most of my childhood um lived away in Mount Gambia I would often go to Mount Gambia to spend time with her and then eventually I mean she moved to Bathurst and um so we'd have more time with her and I had a really good relationship with her she was my she was more my mum and my grandma, you know, she could see through everything that was going on, I guess, from the outside. And, you know, it's like anything these days, you know, from the outside, people's houses can look really pretty and polished and perfect. And um, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And there was a lot of that. Uh, whereas my grandmother, you know, she instilled in me, I guess, self-worth and, and really pushing me to make sure I pursued things I wanted to do and, and that you know, I was going to have a happy life, I guess. That's beautiful. So you uh, graduated high school, you're engaged to Evan. What was your next path uh, living in Bathurst? 
Um, I was actually an uh, assistant nurse um, at a nursing home for a while, and I studied at uni to become a registered nurse, but um, actually didn't finish that because I fell pregnant. And Evan and I, from the minute we sort of met, we talked about children very early on. I actually had a miscarriage um, during my HSC exams. Yeah. Um, so it, it was always, we wanted six kids, you know, it was always something that, you know, we talked about from the start. Um, so, yeah, we started very early um, with children, but unfortunately um, I can't carry to term. Uh, so I've had uh, four miscarriages, um, a couple that were late in the pregnancy, um, and then uh, the three children I have were all premiers. So, you know, we we just, I don't know, from the start, we just had the same dreams for life as far as family. Mm. Um, he came from a family that, uh, you know, had divorced and uh, he hadn't seen his dad for years. And and I guess family was really a really important thing to both of us. Yeah, I'm so sorry that, that your journey to motherhood and parenting was uh, that challenging and it is such a, a difficult experience. You had your son, Trace, at, were you 20, 22? 22, yeah. 22, yeah. And then you had um, two more children, both of whom have cerebral palsy. What was that journey like for you as a mother? Look, I'd love to say it was easy, but it wasn't. I guess the easiest part was accepting the disability, um, which may seem strange to some people, but um, having a sister with an intellectual disability, I had friends through primary school, um, like one of my best friends in primary school had cerebral palsy. I'd been around disability my whole life. Um, I also had two cousins with cerebral palsy who are brother and sister as well. So disability was never, I guess it, it, because it wasn't a strange thing to my life, it wasn't something that scared me. You know, we pretty much said to the doctors, okay, so what now? You know, like, where do we go? What do we what do? We do? Um, it has been hard in the challenges of watching them have to go through things that they have had to go through their life with surgeries and treatments and therapies and, and things like that. But... Um, it's certainly not something as odd as it may sound that I would change um, because it's made them who they are. And also, in a way, it would have forged the foundation of who you are. I mean, how do you think that changed you as a person and your ability to adapt and adjust expectations? In a way, I don't think it did. I think because of the upbringing I had um, and because very early on I was in charge of my siblings and, and and doing those roles, it kind of, as odd as it sounds, kind of just came naturally. I'm a very empathetic person um, and have always been a caring person and tend to put everyone else's needs before my own, um, even though I tell people to do the opposite all the time. Uh, my husband says I'm really good at giving advice but not taking it. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think it really really did change me it just I guess became a bit more of an extension of who I already was. Mm. Do you think living regionally 
made the your navigation of your or children's disabilities more challenging or were you surrounded by great support? Oh, absolutely. It, it does make it more challenging um, being in a rural setting because uh, especially like my eldest is 22 that has cerebral palsy and, you know, in the early days for her, it was really hard to access services and it still is quite difficult to access services now and it's it's hard for rural areas to... Um, retain therapists um, often uh, they'll get them straight out of uni and they'll sign a six-month contract and then they're here for the six months and then off they go again and then you're sitting around um, waiting for another therapist to turn up I mean at one stage um, with my son when he was little we waited 18 months for a new speech therapist to turn up mm-hmm. um, so we were, you know, doing things remotely and, you know, trying to do the best we could ourselves. Uh, so it does make it more challenging. I mean, there are obviously more services around now that the NDIS um, is involved, but then the quality of those services sometimes I question. And But it's still the same story. A lot of the time they're only here for maybe 12 months and then they move on to a city job or a bigger job and um, and then you're looking at, starting all over again. I mean, even for myself, just trying to find an OT can be quite tiring, especially when it's not something you may need all the time, but then when you do need it, you can't find it um, or you're sitting on waiting lists for months and months of it at a time. Yeah, and they are physical services that you require. It's not something that you can necessarily jump on Zoom and fulfil, you know, every aspect of, of what you need. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, I think even more so like through COVID, um, you know, made it very difficult for some families too because there were still some services that you couldn't access um, and they would go to Zoom and it's, you know, it's all well and good to do stretching and, you know, some of your physio stuff through a Zoom call, but it doesn't have the same effect that a physical hands-on session does. Mm, yeah, it's better than nothing, but it's definitely not exactly what we what we need in rural areas. Tell me about your son's foray into wheelchair racing. My son uh, copped a lot of he's copped a lot of bullying through his schooling, and um, you know it's it's hard to make friends uh, when you have a disability. And he was a fiery little kid. <laughs> he's a little redhead, and <laughs> um, you know he get frustrated and get angry and you know so that kind of made it a little bit harder for him too I guess um in the younger years and we decided that we'd send him to a wheelchair sports camp because we thought it might be a way for him to make some friends have some fun um you know get out be active and he's always had a passion for wheelchair racing um, he's watched Kurt Fernley since he was like a tiny little dot and like I used to have to record all the races when he was racing at the Paralympics and stuff so that he could watch them and he would watch them on YouTube and like he was absolutely obsessed with Kurt and um, so we sent him to this camp for the weekend and Kurt was there and we've known Kurt for a long time um, since my daughter was born and um, so he's known Warwick since before he was born practically and so they got to spend some time together on the on that weekend which was great and he got him into a race chair and um Warwick absolutely loved it and Kurt 
kind of said to us at the end of the weekend, like, you probably should get him in one. Like, you know, he actually has natural ability for it. Like, he knows what he needs to do. Um, and so we spoke to him about it and he wanted to give it a try. And, yeah, and then we just sort of went from there. And then... How old was he Saturday morning, at the time? He was 14. Yeah, so then we started travelling to Sydney to train on a Saturday morning with Louise Savage. Uh, so we would get up at four and drive down and literally train for an hour and then drive home from wow. Sydney. Uh-huh. Um, but he was really, really enjoying it, made some really good friends. And um, and then it's kind of just gone from there. Like he did his first, it was like a two and a half K marathon. And I think he'd only been training for maybe four months when he did that. And he just loved that, like just loved the rush of it. And um, and then now we've transferred across to Canberra. So we go across to Canberra every two weeks um, to train with uh, national coach Fred Periak over there and um, and his Canberra crew, which consists of um, mainly Paralympians. And he's just come back from his second trip to Switzerland. So last year was his first international event in Switzerland, which he just absolutely loved and yeah, he's just come back from that again and now we start the cycle of training again and in the aims of making the Paralympic team. Wow, what a journey. And and in the space of four years, I mean, it's quite incredible. What sort of shift did you see in Warwick once he found this passion and this purpose and, and a, a community? I think the biggest shift for me is um, although he's never – He's never complained about his disability. He's never said things like, I hate being disabled or anything like that. Um, I think for him, it's just made him accept more who he is. And he's he's really a kid that's unique and quirky and isn't actually scared to be that way. And I think um, I think being involved in, in the racing community has has helped him even more with that. Like he really just... He really just doesn't care what people think about him, and um, which I just love. Yeah, I, I just so love inspiring. that he's quite happy to be himself and and not worry about what others think about him. And I kind of feel like if you can be like that at eighteen, the world is truly your oyster. Because I feel that it sometimes takes a lifetime to get to grips with who you are and have the confidence to really show that. And so he's miles ahead of so many people oh my god it took me 45 years yeah um you know it's only really been the last 12 months where I've you know I've started to feel that way where I'm like I don't care like well you know I'm not everybody's cup of tea and that's fine um and there's no way 18 year old me would have thought that way you know I questioned everything everyone thought about me and Right up until in my 40s, I did the same thing. Um, That's so, interesting. Yeah, you know, I think it's just, yeah, one of the one of the attributes that he has that um, I just really love. I love the fact that he's just, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care that, you know, people might think he's a bit odd or, or whatever. He, he really just does not care. Well, just <laughs> totally embodies that authenticity. What do you think kept you stuck in that mindset of being frightened of what other people thought? I don't know. I think, you know, I think we just, and I mean, these days a lot of people will put it down to things like social media and, and, and stuff. And, and I guess I know that that plays a huge role for young girls in particular. But 
I think it's just generational. I really, I really do feel we, it's just something that occurs through all generations, and and we start, you know, we start to wonder why we're different from other people, and wonder why we don't fit in, and wonder, you know, why I don't look like that person, and you know, it, it's easy to spiral into that. I need to be there like them. I need to look like that. I need to um, be this way. And I guess the one thing especially that my disability, acquiring my disability really taught me is that your story lies in your imperfections and you can't truly be your whole self unless you're willing to accept yourself um, and accept every little quirk and every little imperfection and, um, and realise that that's what makes you the person you are. Um, it's not about what you look like or what you might sound like or what you wear or I also have PTSD and anxiety so that's always played a big role in my life when it's come to I guess questioning myself and and allowing things to get inside my head um, and not being able to get out of that but I think you just got to get to the point where you realize that none of that actually truly matters and I've always said to my kids, like, I don't care what they do in their lives as long as they're good people. And that's the most important thing. Like, I don't care if they're covered in tattoos or piercings or work as a garbage man or a neurosurgeon. You know, like, I, that really isn't important to me. All that's important to me is that they're, they're good people. And I think we really need to stop and look at ourselves and realise that none of those, I guess, materialistic things matter. It's who we are as a person and what we do with our lives that that truly makes us who we are and we need to stop comparing ourselves and we need to stop questioning why we might not be like somebody else. Who wants to be a carbon copy of someone else? Like, I certainly don't. Well, they do say that comparison is the thief of joy and I think that is, is such a, a true... Uh, it, it, you know, cliches are cliches for a reason because there is like a semblance of truth in them. I think it's something so true about that. You know, uh, it's very easy to academically understand that it's important to embrace your imperfections, but it's very difficult to live that as well and, and to truly embody that. And I suppose it has been such a journey for you. 2016 really was the year that that completely changed your life. Can you tell me about the day that you woke up with a kinked neck and the events that preceded that? I'd actually had like a kinked neck for about six weeks leading up to it. And um, I'd had, you know, I'd been to the doctors. I'd, you know, I'd done all the things that you do when you're uncomfortable. So I like changed pillows and, you know, did all those things um, to see if that's what the problem was. And I tried sleeping on my back and, you know, tried all different positions in bed thinking, you know, it was something I was doing that was, you know, causing it. And I'd had scans done and they couldn't find anything and there was no, like, breakdown in tissue or there were no bulging discs, um, nothing like that. But I started to get some pins and needles in my hand and um, as soon as I got that, I knew that there was something more. Um, so I went back to the doctors and uh, he sent me off for an MRI and so we got that done and that afternoon he he rang and he was like, there's nothing there. Like, we can't see anything. It's most likely you've pinched a nerve um, and, you know, rest and heat packs and, you know, all those things. And that was all we could probably, you know, 
could do and take some anti-inflammatories and, you know, I guess hope for the best. So that was like the Tuesday. And then the Friday I um, woke with the key neck again and thought, God, this is like I had actually got to the point where I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. I um, was sitting on the lounge. Kids were getting ready for school. And uh, my son said to me, Mum, we're going to get to the bus. And we live like 15 minutes from where the bus stop is. And because my son was going to school 65Ks away. And so I stood up off the lounge. And as I stood up off the lounge, it was like someone plugged me into a PowerPoint. And I got this massive shock up my spine. And I automatically started throwing up. It was like nothing I'd ever been through before. Anyway, I and I shouldn't laugh, but and I can laugh about it now. But I got the kids in the car and um, drove across town uh, with a bucket and a towel in my lap, um, throwing up the whole way. I honestly, now when I think about it, have no idea how I managed to even get across town and got him onto the school bus um, because. For context, my um, eldest son was in year 12 at the time, so I didn't want him to miss school. Um, so I got him on the bus and sent him off to school and um, drove back across town. And my youngest son uh, goes to school. and He was going to school at the time, only a kilometre from our house in a little country school. And um, so we went home for a little bit and then I drove him to school. And the whole time I was still vomiting. What was going through your head? What were you thinking was wrong? I've had migraines since I was 15. And uh, in 2010, I had a like a mini stroke from a migraine. And at that time, I had something similar to that. So I kind of just thought I had a mig- like a weird migraine happening. So I drove my son to school and went home and I had the day off work, which was, you know, lucky, I guess. And um, I thought, right, I'll just take some aspirin. I'll go to bed. I'll sleep this migraine off and then I'll be fine. And so I set an alarm on my phone to make sure I get up for the kids for, to pick them up from school. And um, I went to bed and two hours later I woke up in the most excruciating pain I've ever felt. Like I can't fully describe, but it was it was almost like my body was on fire. Like it was just this excruciating, like burning feeling. And so... I thought, okay, something's wrong, you know, I probably need help, went to get out of bed and fell to the floor because I didn't actually realise because of the amount of pain I was in that I couldn't use my left side of my body. So I thought I'd had a stroke. I dragged myself up my hallway um, because even though I'd set an alarm on my phone, I'd left my phone in my lounge room. Oh. So I dragged myself up my hallway and rang an ambulance and I rang my auntie as well because where we lived out of town, I knew she'd get to me first before the ambulance would just so that I could have someone there. And the ambulance turned up, well, two ambulances turned up to the house and um, they strapped me to the trolley and I remember them saying to me, um, you know, we're being overcautious but this is what we need to do and then I don't really remember much more until we got to the hospital and I was rushed in to have scans done and I remember laying in the machine and hearing them say, she's off to RPA like now, like yesterday. And what's RPA? And I just oh, remember the... thinking, 
what did you do? <laughs> like, because up until that point, I just I assumed I was having a bad migraine, um, right. and that there was a possibility that I'd had a stroke. Um, and then when they said that, then yeah, they got a bit more scary. Tanya, my God, I cannot imagine. So what? So you? So by RPA, do you mean Royal Prince Albert, the hospital? Yeah, yeah. So they, um, so apparently they'd already contacted the helicopter to come and pick me up. After I came out of there, I because I was in so much pain and they'd given me so much medication, like it's quite a blur. The only things that I remember is them saying that they couldn't take me in the helicopter because the weather had turned bad, um, so that I would have to go by road. And my husband and my boys were there, and I and I remember them at the end of the bed, um, but I don't really remember anything else. The stuff that I know now is stuff that's been relayed to me by my husband. I remember vomiting at one stage and there being about 12 people rolling me over onto my side to make sure I didn't choke on my vomit, but that's pretty much it. That's until... I got to RPA and they took me into theatre. Um, and then the next thing I remember is waking up after surgery. And so what was your diagnosis? What had caused this extraordinary life event? Um, so I'd had a, what they call a spontaneous abruption of my um, C4-5. So essentially my C4-5 vertebrae shattered into a million pieces so when you look at my MRI, there's just like this blank space where these discs are missing, which is, you know, so bizarre because on the Tuesday when they looked at it, everything was perfect. There were there was nothing wrong with those discs. And, yeah, they just they just shattered. As a result of that, it like, caused nervous, nerve damage um, all down my left side of my body and paralysis. And it was 0.5 of a millimetre off completely severing my spinal cord. So I'm classed as an incomplete quadriplegic. So essentially a, a, what they class as a walking quadriplegic. I had no idea that such a thing even existed, which I assume would be the same for so many medical kind of things because unless you go through it, how are you meant to know or hear of somebody going through something like that? It just blows my mind. Who normally acquires something like that? I mean, is that something that you generally get from sleeping badly? It seems so extraordinary. It's it's rare, but um, ironically, there's a lady in Adelaide who it's happened to twice. Um, I can't believe it's happened to her twice, and she did it from sneezing. But this kind of injury usually happens to people in like high performance roles. So like race car drivers, you know, uh, like your Air Force pilots that go at high speeds and high altitudes. So, yeah, it's it's usually something quite significant. They call it the Christopher Reeves, uh, the Superman injury, because um, it's exactly the same as what Christopher Reeves had. But obviously he's caused uh, complete um, quadriplegia, even though it's rare there are a number of the case number of cases in Australia but yeah it certainly is an odd thing but they don't know what causes it they can kind of speculate on things so I've had a lot of lifting over the years of equipment and and um, stuff with my children I've you know I used to break in horses when I was younger 
So that can cause a lot of pressure on your spine. You know, I was a supervisor of a pub, so lifting kegs or like beer kegs all the time. And they seem to think that maybe the possibility is that um, when people lift, some people lift with the with their back, some people lift with their shoulders and their neck, and and maybe I'm one of those ones that lift with their shoulders and their neck, and and they've kind of explained it that over time it's like an elastic band that just keeps getting stretched and stretched and stretched until it finally gives up and breaks. You were a very active person before, and you were a carer. So to acquire a disability at forty one, how did it change your life? Look, I spent the first nearly two years in denial. For me, it was difficult because, as you just said, like I, I've been the carer, you know, the care of my, my children with their disabilities. Um, you know, at one stage I was a carer for my husband because he had a, a brain injury from a work accident. And sorry, I've always, and I've always just been that person. Like my grandmother um, died of motor neuron disease and, you know, I cared for her and, I've always just been the carer. So the biggest issue for me was I didn't want to be the person that was going to be cared for. Like it was just out of the question. So that was the hardest thing for me to get my head around. Like I just I just worried I didn't want other people to look after me. So for the first two years, I just, nope, this, it, it was like this isn't happening. Um you know, I'm going to walk without my walking stick and I'm going to do this and I'm going to get back running and, I, you know, everything's going to be fine and normal and, you know, nothing's going to change. And I really did push myself for the first few years trying to to make that be exactly how life was, you know, I guess supposed to be. I was trying to navigate the loss of function and the loss of not being able to be as active as, you know, I usually was. I ran 10Ks a day um, because it was, you know, good for my anxiety and um, and it was my space, you know, to maybe get some of the frustrations of being a mum and, and, and just life in general out, you know, and I could no longer do that. So then I was trying to navigate how I was supposed to look after my, my mental health and not spiral because unfortunately for a lot of people that acquire a spinal cord injury, um, you know, the first thing that goes is their mental health after their physical and it can lead them to some really dark places. And I've been there before, only four years before um, I nearly took my own life and um, because I just got into such a dark space and thought that was the only way out. So I didn't want to go back there. So I just had to push through. And then, ironically, my son started wheelchair racing and that was a real turning point for me because I, although I had these amazing children with disabilities who I'd seen do so many amazing things through their life because they'd been told that they couldn't do them and because we told them they could, I actually needed to start taking my own advice. As I said before, I'm really good at giving it, but I'm not good at taking it. really need to start realising that. I needed to listen to what I was telling my children for their whole entire lives. Hmm. And being in that space um, with these amazing athletes and people with disability and watching how they tackled everything in their lives made me realise that I was just being stupid. <laughs> it was it was really an awakening for me because I was just like, what, what is my issue? Like, you know, I was so scared. You know, my physio was like, 
think we need to get you a wheelchair. And, and I was like, nope, not happening. You know, I'm going to keep walking. But then walking was impacting, every, you know, walking was impacting pain and impacting my sleep and my mood and, you know, just making things miserable. Um, but I seen this chair as, I guess, that was almost like the end for me, even though my children have wheelchairs and I was just, and it was just ridiculous. Like, um, and then, you know, I seen these amazing people doing, living their lives every day in wheelchairs, not complaining, um, you know, being able to do amazing things and realizing like I was just being ridiculous and, yeah, that was a real turning point for me. Mm. It's nothing like having community model what your life could look like and having that change the course of your life because you kind of you take that step after what they're doing and take on their perspective. While running was now out of the question for you, another avenue for looking after your mental health kind of rose to the fore and that came in the form of baking. So tell me about baking you know what did it mean to you and and how did it kind of become a safe space baking has always been such amazing therapy for me you know when my kids were little and you know things were difficult I would bake if people were having bad time I would bake for them Um, so it's, it's always been something that I've done um and it's because of my grandma um, my grandma was an amazing Shearer's cook um, and I have all her recipes and she just loved making people happy with food and and I remember as a kid seeing people's reactions to her providing them with baked goods and, and that and, and realising that, you know, that brought joy to people's lives and so, yeah, baking, it was just an organic thing for me, I guess, because of that experience as a child and and it always takes me back to being in the kitchen with her which is you know a really happy memory of mine so I guess I went through a period of time where I went for job interview after job interview after job interview and 70 jobs in total in a space of 18 months and 70 knockbacks oh Tanya um and probably a third of those I didn't even get through the interview, even though I was more than qualified for the job because they just decided that I was a risk for the business and that it would just be too hard. Yeah, so that was, you know, that was really hard because I I was still in that denial phase of my disability too. So here I am not really accepting what was going on and then having these people tell me I was a risk. Uh, to me, it felt like I was worthless. And I just went back to baking <laughs> because that's just how I cope when my mental health is not good. And I was doing a little bit of work for a florist because that's what I did before my injury. And so I was just doing some deliveries for her every now and then and would help out in the shop and um, that just to like keep me busy more than anything. Um, and then the opportunity came up to do a little bit of baking um, for our little hole in the wall cafe and so I was like baking their muffins in slices and um, and then I made them some cookies as a promotional thing and they sold out really quickly and um, 
kept providing them to them and they were like other than my gluten-free caramel slice which is amazing um (laughs) the cookies were like the most popular thing on the menu and then the baking got too much because they got so busy (laughs) that I had to say I'm really sorry I can't do it anymore and then I was back to square one and wondering what I was going to do and I had it conversation with a girlfriend who said to me why don't you just sell your cookies since they were like popular and I, you know at the time I was like who's gonna buy them from someone at home like you know and so I kind of just threw them out there as a bit of a gimmick um and and I did I thought you know this is gonna last five minutes like people are buying for a little bit and then you know that fat will be over and I'll be looking for something else to do. But I kind of guessed that it would give me time to try and figure out what was next. And then, yeah, four years later, <laughs> we're, we're still here baking cookies out of a shipping container. And I post out Australia-wide and I've been very fortunate to be a part of some amazing things. We do a lot in the ADF space, so for the Navy and Army, and we send care packages out. And it's been a bit of a amazing ride I guess oh it's been an incredible journey and you bake you know up to a thousand cookies a a week just yourself which is a a huge amount but what I think it probably differentiates you so much is the uh the difference in all your cookies what they provide so they are called imperfectly perfect for a reason tell me about your inclusive range and what that offers Yeah, so the inclusive range is something I'm really proud of and we're building on that at the moment. Um, I'm just about to have some new prototypes made, which is really exciting. For me, it's really important and and it's been a big focus of the business that we're as inclusive as possible uh, and that because for me, inclusion shouldn't be something that you have to think about. It should be something that just organically happens and is a part of everyday life. I really wanted to have a range that was for everybody. So last year we came out with a range of inclusive cookie cutters. At the moment they consist of a um, prosthetic arm, a prosthetic leg, a wheelchair by itself and a wheelchair that has a beautiful bouquet of flowers on it. It kind of started because my girlfriend, Eliza O'Connell, is a um, Paralympian and she's an amputee and um, she got remarried last year and she oh not last year year before sorry and um in one of their photos they took the bo- her bouquet and they put it inside of one of her prosthetic legs <laughs> and I just thought that was the coolest thing and you know sat with that photo for ages thinking what could I do and then decided that um you know we should make a range like that so I drew up a photo from that uh, a drawing from that photo and um, I have this amazing uh, cookie cutter guy in in Melbourne and I sent him my crazy ideas of you know I want I'd like to make this um, and I'd like to have them for Valentine's Day and yeah and he made them up and so we got the prosthetic leg with the bouquet in it and the two different lots of wheelchairs um, made up and and we launched them um, for Valentine's last year year which was a bit risky to be honest um, because I didn't know how people react to them but they ended up being our biggest seller which was amazing 
And then a friend of my son's got what they call a hero arm, this amazing robotic arm. And I decided we need to have that as part of the range as well. So we drew that up and had that made. And, and yeah, they're one of our most popular ranges now. And it's not just popular with people with a disability, which mm. is quite amazing. It's been embraced by everybody. And we've been able to send those cookies to people that are newly disabled who mm. have lost their legs and their arms. And, um, you know, it's been a way for them to feel accepted and and no different to anybody else. And, you know, I had a beautiful young girl who unfortunately uh, lost both her legs cancer and uh, she's only nine and we were able to send these cookies out to her and she was able to you know have them with her her class friends and um, you know all the kids loved them and it was nice because she didn't it made her feel not any different to the other kids and the fact that the kids just thought these things were cool you know I guess made her feel more accepted. Mm. Totally. And, you know, it's something so innocuous, a cookie, but it can mean so much when someone has made it for you. And then to have the symbol of who you are, it just I think that sweetness and also being seen, there's a, it's just a beautiful combination. It's a recipe for success, pardon the pun. I didn't realise how a cookie could have. As I said before, we, we do a lot in the ADF space and, um, and I work alongside uh, association called Young Veterans and we kind of hooked up through Instagram and December last year I had the opportunity to go down to Melbourne and actually meet with Matt from Young Veterans for the first time and we've been sending cookies down to him to take into the repatriation hospital for a long time and we were taking the Christmas cookies down with us so that he could take them in and he was like oh we'll do better than that and he picked us up and and my son and I got to go into the repatriation hospital and meet with some of the veterans that were in there. So the repat hospital helps veterans with PTSD and, and you know, other medical issues as well and, and helps them get back on track with their lives. So it's a really, really important facility and um, young veterans do a lot in the space. They, they do this, um, like, such an amazing job. And we've been able to, through fundraising of cookies, um, you know, pass on money to Matt that he spent at the Repat Hospital to put like veggie gardens in and um, help with the sensory room and, and, you know, and all different things in there that, that help uh, with the therapies. And so we got, got to go in there and we delivered our cookies. And, um, you know, there was, there was one veteran in particular that we met at the start and he was a bit standoffish and, you know, we passed him the cookie and, and kind of left it at that and, um, you know, did a bit of a tour of the place. And then when we were leaving, he came up and he asked if he could give me a hug. And um, I was like, yeah, of course, and gave him a hug. And it felt like he didn't want to let go. And um, and we walked out of there and my, my son said to me, Mum, you realise they're more than cookies, don't you? <laughs> Sorry. And... Yeah, it wasn't until that moment that I realised that that cookie was a token of someone caring. Mm. So I think that was like a pivotal moment where I actually realised that even though they were cookies, I couldn't make a difference with them and that it 
Like it was, and that was really important. So that's been a real turning point for the business mm. um, this year. It's been really important to, I guess, push myself out of my comfort zone a bit more and um, and make the business about, like it's always been about more than cookies, but I think even more so now. It was a, it's really important for me to be able to share the good and the bad of having a disability because each new person that acquires a disability, um, you know, goes through all the feelings and feels alone and doesn't know where to go for help. And so it's really important for me to share those things through the business as well and and so that people know that they've got a safe space to come to, they can message me if they want to um, or, you know, they can see, you know, I'll make fun of myself wetting myself down the street or, you know, falling over or what, whatever it might be. And um, if in sharing that, that makes someone else feel seen and supported and make them feel like it's okay, that's normal, then that's really important. And because of my PTSD and anxiety and because I've been at the point of no return and, and thinking that suicide was my best option, it's also really important for me to, I guess, stand out in that mental health space and, and share and support as much as I can and, and be there for others. It's a pretty profound, the social impact that doing what you can with what you have can actually create. And we often think, oh, I don't have buckets of cash to give to charities or I don't have X, Y, Z to be able to do that can really change things. But actually something as small as a cookie can have such an enormous difference, which I think is a really beautiful message for all of us to take home. You have people say to you, gosh, you've had so much bad luck, but that's not how you see it, is it? No, no, not at all. And look, we have had our fair share, <laughs> our fair share of bad luck and trauma and and it would be easy to just curl up in a ball in the corner and hide away from the world and look I've been there and I've done that and it doesn't help. I feel very and I hate the word blessed but I do I do feel very blessed in how we've been able to overcome all the challenges that we've had. You know I always say to my husband I don't know how you're still here <laughs> like, honestly not saying anything about men but it's always harder for men like when your wife goes through a miscarriage, like you're going through it together, but the focus is on mum. So often men are, are really forgotten. It happens organically, even when our children were in the NIC unit and going through medical appointments and therapies and surgeries. Um, it didn't matter that he was there because they would talk to me. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, everyone always goes to mum for things and dad sort of gets left in the background um and I'm and I'm so fortunate my husband works away a lot and has done um you know most of the kids lives but when he's home he's present and you know he's always been out there in front doing everything and um and I've been very mindful to make sure that he gets the recognition that he deserves and I think because we've got such an amazing relationship and it's not and not saying that it's perfect um, because it certainly isn't. I think, you know, the challenges we've had along the way, we've worked through together and and that's, you know, been our strong point. Um, it's very, 
I guess it's very easy when you're hit with challenges to try and deal with things on your own and and we've really tackled everything as a team and and that makes me feel very fortunate like the divorce rate in parents with um kids with disabilities is really high you know when you multiply that by a couple of kids with disabilities and then throw in some other medical issues as well um you know you you do question oh my god how have we made it to here but yeah i guess for us it's just been teamwork and and we've just never seen Although the challenges have been hard, we've never seen them as things that were going to stop us or be something that was going to tear us apart. It's just always been really important for us to work as a team, and and um, and we have amazing kids too. Like we're we are very very lucky. So yeah, it's it's really hard to put into words how I feel. I mean, of course, there's been moments where I'm just like I hate this and I'm over this, and you know because that's normal that's you know there's no I don't want to do this anymore and and that's really hard when you have anxiety too because you know those things sneak into your head and make you question everything um but the one thing I've never questioned is how lucky I am to have my beautiful kids and and my husband wow something went very right when you were 16 you were right on the money (laughs) (laughs) it was my he was my first like real boyfriend too <laughs> wow oh my god well you know if you get it right the first time you know buy well, once, that's once. It. it's funny <laughs> you know only like I don't know four or five months into our relationship um I did my debutante ball I was not an attractive teenager um <laughs> and I used you. to get picked and I no no but like I used to get picked on by boys in my year for that reason um and so, you know, I, I think that's why I kind of question, like, what does this guy want <laughs> when I first met him? Because I'd spent this time being told, you know, that I was the ugly duckling of the year kind of thing. And when I did my debutante ball, we were already engaged. And the funny thing was most of the people there thought we were brother and sister. So we always have a really good laugh about that um, because we are quite similar in features. Well, I guess take it's it as made the conversation interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Oh, Tanya, it's just been so refreshing and fabulous to to speak to you and and to have an insight and a glimpse into your very large life and everything that you know is in store for imperfectly perfect sugar cookies, which I think is is going to be something pretty big and pretty special. So, thank you so much for your time and your generosity. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. As I said before, it's like it's just really important for me to, I guess, give insights into having a disability and mental health issues, and and also just to encourage people to support each other. I've been very fortunate the last couple of years to build relationships with some amazing women in small business um, in my local area, who are like some of my biggest cheerleaders now. And really, um, and who have really encouraged me to step out of, you know, my comfort zone. Um, and I guess make me realize that I was more capable of things than I, than I thought I was. And like, I, I feel so very lucky. And I think it's a good thing of living in a rural area as well. Whilst there's still that, you know, people tearing each other down. 
and it is getting less and less, thank goodness. People just want to support each other and it's and it's really lovely and it's and it's nice that they want to support something that might be just a little bit different than your normal business as well. Like we're more than cookies and, and I love that we're a business that has purpose and, you know, that's more important to me than any money that I will ever make. <laughs> because as my husband says, I think I give away more than I actually make. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just really important. I just, I, I guess I just want to be able to make some sort of change in the world, even if it's just a little bit. You know, one of the things I gained so much from these interviews is a well-needed perspective shift. Moving away from the half empty to the glass is half full. It's a real gift to walk away from an interview counting all your blessings. And I think that's what I walked away with after speaking to Tanya. Tanya really shows us how you can make someone else's life that little sweeter through the smallest of gestures and just how big of a ripple effect that can then have. Her personal values have seeped into her business values and that really shines through in her advocacy and her business. You can check Tanya's workout on Instagram under the handle Imperfectly Perfect Sugar Cookies and go check out her very varied range of cookies that are sure to put a smile on your dial. They're definitely not cookie cutter. The latest issue of Grazy Her is on sale right now. If you don't have a news agent near you, you can always jump online to grazyher.com.au to purchase a copy or consider subscribing and have your copy turn up in your mailbox six times a year. While you're here, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing Life on the Land if you have a jot of time. It only takes a minute and makes such a difference to others being able to find us. And if you know of someone who might get a kick out of this episode, send it to them. Help share the Grazy Her word and keep us telling these extraordinary stories. Until next time, keep well. My name is Em Herbert and this is a Grazy Her podcast.